This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Hosting a daily morning podcast show is taxing on both the mind and the body, especially when it comes to loading up on carbs, sugars, and other unhealthy breakfast foods. So I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have discovered my new breakfast of choice, Magic Spoon. With its zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving, Magic Spoon is healthy and delicious cereal. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And it comes in four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and my own personal favorite, blueberry. Magic Spoon, cereal that tastes too good to be true. Go to magicspoon.com forward slash keen on to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code KEENON at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash keenon and use the code keenon for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It's December the 23rd. We're almost finished with 2020. I think many people will be thrilled with that. There's a big billboard in San Francisco at the moment um, when you drive on the highway, when you're going over the, the Bay Bridge, and it says uh, the... Uh, the only good thing about 2020 is it's almost finished. Um, one of the things that occurs to me about 2020 is it seems to have taken away our sense of agency, our sense of control over ourselves. If you add COVID in particular, together with all the other economic and cultural crises of 2020, it seems as if in many ways we've been diminished. We don't have any power over ourselves. And in a peculiar kind of way, I guess, we are, we're losing the future. Jérôme Lanier, the my, my Berkeley friend and neighbor, once famously said, I miss the future. And I think there is a general nostalgia about the future, the idea of the future being better, the idea that perhaps the future was a place where we would realize agency. So how can we rediscover the future in 2021. One place to start is with my guest today and his new book. Uh, my guest is um, 
Brian David Johnson. Uh, I'm going to call him BDJ. I'm going to avoid making any childish jokes by calling him BJ. Uh, BDJ is the author of a really interesting new book, The Future You, combining, I guess, psychoanalysis with futurism. Is that a fair way of putting it, Brian? Um, are you a combination of psychoanalyst and futurist? Um, I think, well, I think it's more of a futurist than an engineer. I think my goal was to take the processes and procedures and the tools that I've used for 25 years as a futurist and put them in the hands of just average folks, as you said, Andrew, so that people can take their agency back so that they can start to build their future and not be stuck with fear. Uh, the subtitle of the book is Break Through the Fear and Build the Life You Want. That sounds, Brian, a little seductive, perhaps um, a little salesy. We all, of course, want to build the life we want, but isn't that something that's generally uh, unobtainable for mortals like you and I? Or maybe you're not mortal, but I am. I think for most people, in number one, it's it's figuring out well, who is the future you? You know, what is the future you want? You know, and we talk in the book about you know, based upon facts and based upon sort of things going on, it's sort of think about well, how do you envision the future you? Like, who do you want that to be? Um, and that's really what we do is when the book is I start to kind of go through and kind of go through the very methodical steps, the steps that I would do with just, you know, I would do with large corporations. I would do the United, with the United States military, with different governments, really kind of methodically breaking down how you go about getting to that future. Brian, though, isn't isn't the future dead? Um, you write in your book about a mutual friend, Douglas Rushkoff, uh, one of the great critics, the New York City-based critic of technology. You suggest he's a friend of yours too, and you're sympathetic with some of his arguments. But hasn't haven't people like Rushkoff and and many others essentially argued that technology has failed the future, that it's destroyed the future? I don't think it's destroyed the future. I think what technology has done is it's just a tool. Uh, you know, we have to remember that, that technology. Well, we know that, BDJ. I mean, that's that's the ultimate cliche that technology is just a tool. But it's become a tool that's fucking us up, isn't it? Well, that, but that's what I was getting to, Andrew, is that for the, first, the first step is to remember that, it's a, that it is just a tool. I would argue that that's not true, that most people think that technology has agency, that technology is the change. And I think what Doug would tell you and what I talk about all the time is that it's all about the humans. Um, and it's all about, you know, any techno technological conversation is generally a conversation about people because it really begins and ends with people. And it's usually about the power structures and the existing power structures. And oftentimes what technology does is it just amplifies, um, you know, much like actually the, the pandemic of what we've been going through really has amplified, has been the great accelerator. Technology has become that tool. Um, and so that's what I've worked with people to do is to figure out how they can have that agency to take that control back. We'll come back to agency later, uh, Brian. Uh, one of my favorite creations of 2020, one of the few creations that is unambiguously good in my view, is Bob Dylan's new song, My Own Version of You, um, which uh, I'm not sure if he's parodying or critiquing or making fun of futurists like you, but he says, I'll take the Scarface Pacino and the Godfather Brando, mix it up in a tank and get a robot commando. 
If I do it upright and put the head on straight, I'll be saved by the creature that I create. Of course, what Dylan is doing is, as I suggested, uh, mocking the notion of creating these ideal versions of ourselves. Is that what you're saying in the book? Or are you suggesting to people that they need to become more realistic as opposed to idealistic or romantic about themselves? I think more realistic, you know, certainly being an engineer is sort of being founded in sort of reality, but also it is the- Well, I'm not so sure about that. Why, why, why should engineers have more of a grounding in reality than anyone else? Well, I think ultimately what, at least what I do as an engineer is I build things, you know, and what I'm trying to do is actually solve problems and build things. So I think in that way, I think engineers and that kind of mindset does have a grounding because you are trying to build tools, you are trying to solve problems. And so I wouldn't actually say being romantic, I would say being more humanistic, understanding that, you know, again, that not only do the humans have the ability to build, but also it's all about the people. So much of what I write about in the book is all about that the future is about people and the future is very local and sort of understanding the people about you. So I would say it's about being more humanistic. Um, a number of our shows have been about this increasingly controversial and problematic distinction between machines and humans. We had uh, Frank Pasquale on the show talking about new roles of and uh, new laws of robotics, defending human, human expertise in the age of AI, um, and a number of other shows like that. Um, uh, uh, Alan Turing famously said that we need to teach machines about humans rather than humans about machines. What's your definition of what it means to be a human? Well, I think we're going back to what Turing said. I mean, I think so much. And I'll put the Turing quote, but it's a wonderful quote. I'll put it back up on the screen for those watching. Uh, uh, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll read it uh, for people who, are, who aren't able to see the screen. Uh, this is what Alan Turing, perhaps the founder of computer science, the guy who invented computer science in, in the middle part of the 20th century said, it's quite true that when a child is being taught, his parents and teachers are repeatedly intervening to stop him doing this or encouraging him to do that. But this will not be any less, any the less when one is trying to teach a machine. I have made some experiments in teaching a machine to do some simple operation and a very great deal of such intervention was needed before I could get any result at all. Uh, in other words, the machine learned so slowly that it needed a great deal of teaching. Um, so it, it's this idea that we as humans need to teach machines uh, how to service us. And I think that idea for me is, is foundational, is understanding that ultimately it's all about the humans and about serving and, and actually being, making humans' lives better. I think it goes back to the early days. I use this example with my students all the time from uh, Arizona State University, is that you know the very basis of how most of us interact with a computer is a QWERTY keyboard. And it's very important to understand the history of where that came from, right? It came from uh, typewriters and it came to basically, it was used to slow people down. 
the QWERTY keyboard and the design of it was actually to make us type slower so that the, the hammers on the typewriters wouldn't get all gummed up. And then that legacy was brought forward for computers. So we've using, basically we're turning ourselves into machines so that we can interact with these machines. And I think one of the things that's starting to happen in the 21st century is that is starting to shift, that we're actually, actually getting machines to be able to interact with us and embrace the humanity. So when we can use voice, when we can use gesture, when we can use understanding us in a much deeper way, that becomes, I think, far more interesting. This is something that uh, another of our guests on the show, Brian Christian, I, I, I'm sure you know him, uh, Brian, uh, another Brian, uh, calls the alignment problem, machine learning and, and human values. You sound still reasonably optimistic, but so many uh, of our shows this year have been how we failed ourselves. Um, we had, for example, uh, Elliot, Elliot Curry on the show uh, uh, last week talking about the 162,000 African Americans in the last 18 years who have lost their lives to violence. And he, he entitles his book A Peculiar Indifference because most people not only are unaware but profoundly indifferent. We, of course, We've, of course, had many shows about COVID. Um, we've had shows about the failure of capitalism, about the need to uh, actually harness capitalism to save the world. Where's the evidence, Brian, that technology is actually in any way making the world a better place? Well, again, it's, again, it's not, and I know you know this, Andrew, it's not about technology, right? It's about people. And so the question then goes to how can people make this a better place. And I think this goes very specifically back to, I mean, you can look at all the failings, all the things where, where things have gone wrong. And, you know, one of the things that I do um, is I'm the director of a threat casting lab. So I am the director of a lab that specifically goes and looks at possible and potential negative futures. We actually spend most of our time trying to find where things will go terribly wrong in the next decade. But then we always turn around and say, okay, great. Now that we've identified these dark places, how do we disrupt, mitigate, or recover from it? How do we actually make that future better? I don't think going to all those dark places and being critical of the future is bad. I'm still an optimist because what I'm pushing to people and saying, yes, you can see these dark places. Then you turn around and say, okay, so what can we do about it? You are a, a, a self-styled futurist, uh, unashamedly so. You write about it in the book, um, and you use that title to introduce yourself, and, and you've certainly made a career out of it. Uh, there has been a, a generation, if you like, of futurists like yourself emerge over the last 30 or 40 years. Is there any evidence that futurists make the future better, that futurists can actually realize the future? Well, so much of what I do is taking the, the tools of being a futurist, right? The, the, the different processes and procedures that we have. And I work with organizations. I work with people to then move towards that positive future, to actually make things better, make things better for their company, make things better for the country, make things better in people's lives. And I think often what I have seen over the last 25 years is that yes, we actually can do it. That's why I'm a declared optimist, as you've seen, is that I know that people have the ability to shape the future and make it better. When it comes to uh, technology, uh, one of uh, my old friends, uh, 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 somebody who's been on the show several times, is Tiffany Schlein, my neighbor in Marin County. She wrote a book, 24-6, which came out in paperback this 
uh, year, which suggests that the way to make ourselves happy is to master technology, to um, to liberate ourselves from technology at least w once a week uh, for a, a tech Shabbat. D do you think that there's some truth in that? Is is one form of, of mastering the future controlling our use of technology? Definitely. I think, again, going back and understanding that it's ultimately about you as a person, not the technology, but also about the people around you and the relationships that you have. You know, uh, you know, using a smartphone or using technology is really great for connecting with people and getting things done. But to understand, again, it's about those relationships. It's about the stories that you tell each other. It's about that connectivity. And so being able to take a break and take a step back and understand and, and value that human connection or value just the connection that you have with yourself. Uh, so yeah, I think that is a that is an excellent piece of advice. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in your book, uh, Brian, about tech. There's not a lot about the environment. We've had a lot of shows about the fragile Earth, as 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 um, Henry Finder, the 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 director, the the organizer, the editor of the New Yorker anthology about climate change. All sorts of books we've had about the environment and the impact of. 20th and 21st century technology um, on the earth. And indeed, we've had uh, some people talk about uh, the way in which um, technology is literally destroying the earth. Why, why didn't you write much about that? Do you think it's relevant or is it sort of beyond, beyond the area of your interest or expertise in the book? Well, certainly it's beyond the area of my expertise. So I'm not an expert in climate science or climate change. Um, I have a lot of colleagues. Um, there's a lot of people that I work with at Arizona State University and as a part of my threat casting lab, it will come up, but that's not really my area of expertise. Certainly it comes in. Um, certainly the um, impact of technology that it might have, you know, having these large servers, having all of these technologies, having the rare, um, rare earth materials. I mean, there's a lot of areas that kind of come into it, but most of the work that I do is mainly being a technological futurist. But then also what I wanted to do in the book is I really wanted to focus more on people's lives and how to help people personally kind of get that that confidence and have those tools to start making the changes in their lives. Right, it's the confidence. And you suggest in the book, uh, yesterday we had Leslie Bloom on the show talking about her new book, Fallout, which was which is a wonderful book about John uh, Hersey and his writing of, of Hiroshima. You suggest that it's with those, uh, the, 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 the nuclear bombing of, China, of, of Japan, of Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that our skepticism, our pessimism of technology was born. Um, there hasn't, of course, been a nuclear incident or a bomb for 70 or 80 years. Do you feel, still think there's that legacy of, of Nagasaki and Hiroshima in our culture? I think it's a that's an interesting point in history, and I think the the part Andrew that you're talking about in the book is uh, the conversation I have with uh, James H. Carrot. He's a he's a cultural historian. He's a as a futurist, I do a lot of work with historians. Uh, most people right. think that that historians and futurists don't get along, but the fact of the matter is, we really do. I do a lot of work with them because what a lot of them will tell you is the that history doesn't repeat itself, but history is the language that we use to talk about the future. So that part of history, and especially that cultural history, is so important. And, and what James talks about is 
for many people that that moment, sort of the dropping of the bombs, was when the scale of those technologies, the scale and effect of that science was so huge that that was the big shift. Um, and if you look at it, that it's it's those scales. And I've often I've written in other places and, you know, looking at things like artificial intelligence or looking at sort of these very, very large technological or scientific shifts. I think that really shakes people because because of the scale of it, we feel so subsumed by it. Uh, you also, uh, Brian, in the book, talk about cooking. You suggest that uh, uh, futurism is, is is kind of like cooking. And that reminded me of another interview we did uh, with my old friend Poe po Bronson and Arvind Gupta, their book, Decoding the World, another book about technology, in some ways optimistic like yours, in other ways pessimistic. And, and at one point, uh, Poe argues that genetic engineering uh, which is reinventing, literally uh, recreating human beings, is like a cooking show. Why is futurism like a cooking show? Or wh what is it about being a futurist that reminds you of cooking and being in the kitchen? Well, I think that was one of the, the kind of really interesting conversations that was in the book. It was with one of the people who I've done a, a fair amount of work with and, and talking with her. And she came back as after I had worked with her thinking about and using this process. And she had used it to actually make real change in her life. And we were reflecting on it as we were kind of walking and talking. And she brought up this idea that it was like cooking. And, and I thought that was quite lovely because I had never, never really thought about that before, right? That because the idea is that the process of, of future casting, this process of being a futurist, it's just that. It's it's sort of a it's it's a process. It's a way, it's kind of like a recipe. Here's here's what you can do, but really ultimately I can't tell people their future. I can say here's a recipe, here's what you can follow, but like most good recipes, it's up to the cook. It's up to the chef that it's really up to the person who's building and shaping their future. And so all great chefs, you know, take a recipe, but then change it, change it for that time in their life, for their audience, for what they want to do. And that flexibility, that's one of the things I really like about that comment was that, it, you know, yes, it's a process. And yes, it's something that I've used for many, many years. But ultimately, it's about people taking it and making it very individual, like we all do with cooking. How do you expect? genetic engineering to change uh, who we are and our sense of agency. Uh, we had Eben Kirksey uh, on the show, um, I think it was in, in November, talking about his new book, The Mutant Project, uh, Inside the Global Race to Genetically Modify Humans, a book about CRISPR. Do you see CRISPR as, as being the fundamental technology of the 21st century? I think one of the things that I really started seeing around 2013, when I started doing work with synthetic biologists, with geneticists, and sort of seeing this world, because for me, again, right, I'm, right, Andrew, I'm that geek, right? I'm that technological futurist who sort of comes out of that sort of Silicon Valley world and the, the of world of sort of computers and processors. And for me, that the language that they started using around thinking about biology and technology starting to merge. And that to me became really interesting. And the thing in 2013 that happened was you had a group of scientists and researchers who took 
Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, a picture of themselves, all of Shakespeare's sonnets, turn them into ones and zeros and then turn those ones and zeros into DNA. And then they took that DNA and they put it into a E. coli molecule. They let it live and, and breed. And then they extracted the DNA back out and moved it back over into ones and zeros with 100% accuracy. And this to me, in 2013 was this one of those moments that it really kind of stopped me because what really had happened there is we had moved back and forth between biology and technology and back again. And for me, yes, Andrew, those, those implications are still right on the edge of imagination, right? It is right on that edge of impossibility of all the things that we can do with it. And for me, one of the reasons why I'm a professor is some of the more interesting ideas that I've seen with from my students comes from them because they are unencumbered by the past. They have these ideas of, of what they might be able to do and how they might be able to use this technology to, to make people's lives better. And as, as you know, Brian, um, the impossible becomes very possible quite quickly in Silicon Valley and in tech. So what happens if Poe's idea of genetic engineering and a, and a cooking show do, does indeed come together and and, and CRISPR becomes a reality. What happens if we can design humans that aren't fearful and are able to have exactly the kind of world life that they want? What, what would become of things? Well, first of all, I think that's a that's a question for ethicists, right? And and having well, you it, are an ethicist. You can't you can't dodge that one. I mean, no, by no, definition, no, no. as a futurist and as an engineer, and and uh, and thinking about these profound issues, you're always talking about ethics, for better well, or worse. I'm talking about ethics, but I'm not an ethicist. Again, I, I would never be too arrogant to say I'm an ethicist. But no, certainly, I'm not. I'm not dodging ethics by any means, right? I think we need to ask ourselves, well, what do we want with that? What do we want with that? Future? What do we want to do with that technology? This is one of the questions that we've not asked. I think this is where we've fallen into some traps and hazards when it came to a lot of the technology we had around us. You know, again, well, but, but, okay, well, but but leaving aside that, should we want to design? If we can indeed design humans by the mid to end of the twenty first century, should we want to de design them? so that they aren't fearful and they are able to have exactly the lives they want? And so the how I would play that out as a futurist, I would say, okay, great. So we have this technology and this is the thing that we can do. Okay, great. Then what, what are we optimizing for? What is the thing we actually want to do? And so the bar then that I try to hold myself to when I'm looking at this is, well, how are we going to make people's lives better? And so in that, that right there should actually make everybody stop and go. But okay. when it, that makes, I mean, if and, and, and you know this is the age-old question that everybody from Huxley to H.G. Wells to everybody else who's written about technology and human happiness have, have pondered: if we get everything we want, will we be happy? Well, and I'm not saying happy, right? I'm saying better. Uh, we should talk about happiness because that was mm. one of the things which well, is talk about happiness. Is happiness and 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 utility are they the same thing? Well, I didn't know. And so this goes back specifically, Andrew, to how, how I work, right? So I even write about this in the book, right? So when I talk to people, people say, you know, in the future, they want to be happy. And then people talk about that's something we use all the time to have turn about and understand about happiness. And so I actually went to a colleague of mine who studies happiness. Uh, so this is very much how I work. So I'm like, okay, great. You want to be happy. How do we do that? So let's define happy. And so I went to him and what he would tell you is that happiness is this mix between pleasure and purpose. 
that I think when uh, you use people, when you speak of people like Huxley and things like that, oftentimes what they're talking about is pleasure, right? If you get everything you want, if you look at pleasure when it comes to drugs or food or sex or whatever, that that's pleasure. And he argues that that's fine and pleasure is good, but you also need purpose, that we know as human beings that we need to have purpose in our lives. And for him, he says, it's understanding that balance and understanding that that balance shifts throughout our entire lives about how much pleasure we have and how much purpose we have. And it's not one extreme or the other, but it's finding that balance between the two. Uh, Brian, earlier uh, this year, we had Kermit Patterson on the show talking about fossil men, the quest for the oldest skeleton and the origins of, of, of humanity. And he came up with a couple of, uh, I don't know whether we call them creatures or humans. If, if these people were able to see us now, do you think that they would think not that they perhaps would have an understanding of the concept of progress, but have we indeed made progress after the over the last two or three million years? Again, I think that's how you define progress. You know, that's I think this time of year is always a, a and always an interesting time when you start reading sort of newspapers and accounts of the year. And twenty twenty certainly is a uh, not one of those times because it, we've had this this global pandemic. But a lot of people, the way that they measure progress is by things like life expectancy, right? Are we indeed living longer? Well, the answer is yes. Um, you know, the idea, and there's a whole litany of sort of how we're describing and how we define sort of getting better and making progress. So let's end, Brian, with a, let, let's, uh, let's, let's test your credentials as a futurist. Let's imagine 2050. I've asked, there's seven or 10 questions here. By 2050, will we be living on Mars? So, uh, Andrew, I've got to stop you there. The problem is that I only do 10 years out. Okay, well, let's do 10 years out, 2030. Will we be living on Mars? No. Uh, will AI have turned evil and, and, and be waging war on humans? Will we become serfs to AI? Well, many people would argue, so AI is a, right, there's a tricky concept, right? AI and machine learning is that, back to what you said, it's not AI, it's people. Um, and so, well, people have turned evil and be waging war on other people. We already are. Um, and so I think, you know, AI being a tool. Yeah, I think the fact is, is that artificial intelligence is already being used to harm people. We've seen it. It's also being harmed to actually do great things for people as well. And I think it's one of the things for us to know that it's not AI turning evil at all. It's actually human beings. Evil humans. Another of the great themes of 2020. Uh, oceans will rise and deserts expand, Brian. Yes or no by 2030? The climate, sci the climate scientists that I'm doing work with say that, yes, we are seeing observable uh, changes both to the oceans and the deserts. Uh, robots will take tens of millions of jobs by 2030. Now, this is something that I've done a lot of work on, um, sort of understanding robots, but then I would, I would, I would, sort of tease this out even more, Andrew, let's not only call them robots, because let's call them both physical and digital robots, right? So you have sort of these autonomous uh, uh, devices, whether they be digital or not. Um, and we're starting to see them take more and more jobs. I know that they will take many jobs. We will have a major shift uh, over the next 10 years in the, uh, in the infrastructure. We're already starting to see people begin to change 
when it comes to that. So about five years ago, we weren't having this conversation or most people in sort of popular culture weren't having these. There was, as you know, some, some seminal work that was done by Oxford University and then many other people looking at the actual economic impact uh, of what this is. So I do think you cannot underestimate the fact of these autonomous technologies, but we're already starting to see people start to then say, okay, well, well, what do we want? How will we use those? And especially in the European Union, you're starting to see quite a few people um, take steps. So I think over the next five years, you'll have a far better understanding of will that be a million or will that be tens of millions? But we know that we will see the automation of human labor more and more. Brian, by the way, I'm going to have you back on the show in 2013. If you get this wrong, I'm going to eat you up. I'm going to put you in the kitchen and chop you up. Uh, very quickly, these last questions. Uh, uh, will we be able to print replacement organs for transplant? That is a materials question. So we're trying to get the material science right for that. Again, not my area of expertise, but knowing if you wanted to watch if this will happen, that's the area to watch. That making sure that the materials, the actual way that we have of printing it and the way that we have of doing the, the digital work there is, is there, but actually getting the, the material correct. We will eat beef meatballs without killing cows. I think even I would say yes on that. Well, that's one. already happening. We're already seeing a major right. shift in that. Rich people won't age. Will Peter Thiel exist forever? A nightmare, I think, for most of us. <laughs> I think when it comes to aging, uh, extending life, we're seeing that more and more. But as I'm sure many of your guests and many of the things that you've seen, getting to 100 years old is very, very uh, uh, accomplishable. Getting to 125 is very hard. Getting to 150 is some major leaps. Um, Certainly over the next 10 years. Uh, yeah. What about this idea, everyone getting $1,000 a month for doing nothing? That seems to be a reality too. Well, I think we've already started to see seen that, you know, certainly with this global pandemic sort of all over the world, you've seen things with aid. And I think as we come back from the pandemic and as we come back from this global recession, I think we have some serious questions to sort of understand, OK, how are our economies built and how will we come back? And finally, Brian, uh, CRISPR will lead to a new transhumanist species by 2030. Yes or no? I am, am, am not a huge fan. Again, I'm a humanist. So ultimately, Anna I, Cook. Use, Anna Cook. I want them to use CRISPR to actually make us more human. Good. And then uh, very, very briefly, uh, Brian, you've been a good sport here. Uh, for 2021, how, how is COVID going to shape 2021? I don't mean in terms of the vaccine or more deaths. I know you're not a, a physician. We've had lots of shows about that. But um, how is it going to change our condition as humans? Is it going to make us happier or more miserable in 2021? I think it's going to present us with a choice. So what we've experienced globally in 2020 is a worldwide destabilization. This is why it was so painful, right? Everything that we depended upon from social infrastructures to economic infrastructures, you know, all the way down to getting toilet paper, all of these broke. Um, and as we start to build those back, we always have to remember that, number one, it was the scale, which is, was global, um, and then also that it was all based on the virus. So as you said, so always remember it's about the virus. So if you're tracking and seeing its effect, we got to get to the other side of the virus. So and I think you know that. But then the question becomes, so as we come back from this, as we do rebuild those systems and start to understand what was broken, I think we have we have an opportunity. 
we have a real opportunity, both in the business world, our personal world, and in our social and cultural world, to really interrogate how are we going to come back. That's why I think with your show and all of your guests and pointing out all those failures are incredibly important. So that as we do come back, we start to really, really question what that's like. Well, it's nice to have uh, a cheerful guy on the show. Everyone's been so miserable this year. The cover of your book, Brian, is, is a cheerful orange. The future you break through the fear and build the life you want. If you want to break through your fear, and we're all fearful, and build the life you want, you need to read Brian David Johnson's new book. Brian, in addition to your book, where are you at the moment? You in uh, 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 Arizona, right? I'm on the north coast of Oregon right now. Oh, my God. Well, you're, like all the rest of us, stuck inside these weird times. What else should people be reading? You're in your library, so you have some books to hand. What else should people be reading to make sense of the, as you say, you're as much a historian as a futurist. The best futurists are also good historians. The good historians are also futurists. What else should people be reading in these strange times? Well, let's start, let's start with history. Let's start with, and, and as Andrew, my, my students love to play a game where they're doing what you're doing, where they're looking at all the books behind me and they try to weave those into their questions that they ask me. So for me, again, I'm a futurist, as you said. So the really kind of ground, grounding work of futurism is uh, this book, Future Shock, by um, Alvin and Heidi Toffler. Very important, uh, a, a team. This really popularized back in the 1970s uh, futurism. Um, and made it. Uh, there's also a really great Orson Welles narrated uh, documentary out there based upon this. And a lot of, I still teach this book, um, and a lot of the way that they wrote about the future and talked about the future still holds true. Some of it was a little goofy, some of it was a little weird, but a lot of it still holds true today. So I think looking back to history, this is a really important one. And then looking to the present and the future, these are two friends of mine, P.W. Singer and August Cole. Uh, this is their book, Burnin. It's actually a piece of science fiction. It's science fiction based on science fact. I'm also a science fiction writer. I use fictions as a way of helping us to craft and think about the future, that that's how we can change the future. And so what these two do is based upon their research, they look at the future of technology and where things might go. And getting back, Andrew, you should probably have them on because this is a very dark future, but their idea is to show this to people so that we can actually make change. Well, Brian, uh, Brian David Johnson, a real, a real honor to have you on the show. I wish you, and this is appropriate given our conversation, a very happy 2021. And I will look forward to having you back on the show in 2030 to see whether or not we have indeed become genetically modified. Thanks so much and happy, happy and a very healthy uh, new year. Thank you, Andrew. You have a lovely end of the new year and have a great 2021. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much 
for listening.